Good morning, Compass. It has been so long, and what a year it has been. It seems like it's dragged on forever in some ways, and in other ways, I can't believe it's June. I just tried to put a May date on something I was working on yesterday. It seems like nothing and everything has happened. As my dad mentioned last week, we're spending these next few weeks talking about grief. Because in all change, there is grief, even positive change. You get that dream job, and there's the loss maybe of coworkers that you liked before, or the low stress that came with a monotonous job. You marry the person that you love most, and you trade some of your autonomy. You trade living with your family or friends or roommates. Watching your child grow up can be so exciting to see them take those first steps, to say first words, first day of school. But I was listening to an interview the other day with Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon, and they were describing motherhood and just the loss of feeling the, your child's weight pressed fully against your chest. There's a loss even as children grow up. With each new thing we experience, there is so much grief. In our current moment, there is such a long list of things that we could grieve. Nearly 120,000 deaths in the United States due to COVID-19. The unemployment rate has jumped up to 13%, up from 3% just a few months prior. The largest racial protests in decades at the death of George Floyd. And specifically, in our little community at Compass, we grieve moving from this building. While we celebrate the way God seems to be providing us a new space, it is still a change that comes with loss and therefore grief. In 1968, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the groundbreaking book on death and dying, in which she outlined what she had identified as the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, if you read it all, you're encouraged um, about grief at all. You're encouraged not to get hung up on the order. As most of you know, grief almost never charts itself in neat lines with timetables. It looks much more like a ship lost at sea than a bar graph with a legend explaining exactly what will happen when. I believe that much of what we are feeling or attempting not to feel can begin to make more sense to us if we look at it through the lens of grief. So today I want to talk about the first stage of grief, denial. There's a reason that when we get that call, the diagnosis, the delivery of bad news, often the first words out of our mouth is no. That can't be. I will not accept this. It can't be true. We reject it because the impossible cannot be true. We say things like, oh, that virus is all the way over there in China. I bet it won't affect us at all. We say, that's one bad apple cop. I don't think we have problems with race in America. We say, surely we won't have to move churches in the middle of a pandemic. We just figured out live streaming. How in the world will we pull this off? Now, I have to say, it's a little bit funny that denial 
is this first topic and that I'm the one to teach on it because I am a master at denial. I am so good at reframing things. Something hard happens, even if it's very sad or difficult, and at a mostly subconscious level, I will reframe it to see the silver lining, which sounds like a really great quality, and I think sometimes that it is. But it doesn't serve me well in something like this that drags on for months and months and months. Normally I would step back, withdraw, reframe, and come back with a new, fresh idea, a new way to handle the situation, but after we've done that 10, 12 times and not acknowledge that it's hard, it's exhausting. Our lives keep being affected in every way with constant change. And it's hard to say that that's hard. Robert Frost has this great and famous line you've probably heard before. I always think of it with dread when I realize that I'm in a particular state of denial. When I probably have some grief that needs processing. The phrase, the best way out is through. And this is so hard because initially it feels much, much easier to deny to be angry and bargain and to even be depressed than to accept reality as it is. So we tweak our denials. Okay, well this virus might affect me, but at least I still have my job. At least I don't know anyone who has died. At least I have my health. We attempt to reframe. Okay, so maybe we have a race problem in America. You know, maybe the justice system could use some work, or maybe we need some different standards for cops. But I could never be complicit in something like what happened to George Floyd. Okay, yeah, it's, it's, this, this virus is pretty annoying. I can't find some things I need at the store. There's lots of changes at work or in my daily routine. But, it, you know, it's really not that bad. Um, just this last week, actually, um, with my coworkers, we had our staff meeting that we hadn't had for a few weeks, and people just started talking. And um, one of my coworkers, her son, had just randomly started passing out recently, and so they were trying to figure that out. And so she had shared some of her glucose strips and kit with him to start trying to figure out what was going on. And it got to the point where she needed more of the kit of glucose tabs and when she went to the store it was like she couldn't find a kit and tabs that matched because everyone had been so worried and been taking things from the shelves that she couldn't find what she needed for her son and she said in that moment I realized that I kept trying to dismiss this virus as being hard it's not affecting me and I just walked to the parking lot saying this is exhausting not being able to find what I need for my son. Another coworker, I walked in my office. Um, we have a very tiny office, and so it was suggested that we move to social distance. And I walk in, and my coworker is crying at her desk as she's about to move. And she's written on giant pink paper, this is temporary, I will be back. Just sad that she would work by herself when we had worked so much as a team. Change is hard, even the things we think are small. Another denial that we might have heard a lot is, I've never had slaves. I've never put my knee on any man's neck. I've never used a racial slur. I'm not a cop or a judge. Honestly, in Northwest Arkansas, I don't even interact with that many black people. What do you want me to do? 
As we've talked about, we're looking at how grief plays out in the book of Exodus. And the most obvious part of the story that stuck out to me um, is Pharaoh's denial, his refusal to let the Israelites go. But I was struggling. How will I tie Pharaoh's denial to grief? How does that fit in our cultural moment? And very quickly, I laughed out loud because Pharaoh was in denial about two things. Slaves and plagues. We probably have more in common with him than we would really like to see. And can we talk about another form of denial that I keep seeing playing out? Almost like this big, tragic social experiment. But I think a huge form of denial is politicizing. Over the last few months, we've seen two things that are very personal to the human experience turned into political issues. A virus and the color of your skin. We've set up so many false dichotomies. If you support black lives, you must hate cops. If you don't support cops, you must not care about black lives. If you don't wear a mask, you must not care about other people. If you wear a mask, you must be paranoid. If you vote for this person, that must mean you believe A, B, and C. And if you vote for that person, it must mean X, Y, and Z. And here is why I believe that is such a heartbreaking form of denial. Because when I put you on the other side, when I put you in that group that believes that thing that is opposite of me, I let myself off the hook. If you're on that side, then I don't need to listen to your story. I don't need to understand where you're coming from. At its best, it can be dismissive, and at its worst, it's dehumanizing. I can literally deny your reality by putting you on one side and me on the other. But people are so much more than one thing. I talked with a friend from high school yesterday on Instagram. She is a black female cop in the, mil in the military. Imagine the complexity of her feelings right now. A couple of days ago at work, I was tasked with doing interviews with photos as to why people had chosen to wear masks. It's optional at McKee Foods. And it was so eye-opening. There was a group of engineers who had been wearing them pretty consistently. And the assumption was I was tasked with interviewing them because um, it seemed like they wanted to be wearing them. But on talking with them, as it turns out, they absolutely hate masks. They think they're stupid. They don't like them at all. But the contractors they work with most of the day are required to wear them. And the engineers did not think it was right that they didn't wear them too. Their reason was solidarity. People are more than just one thing. From another friend from college, she's a Hispanic woman married to a black cop in Chattanooga. They have a toddler son. Her husband is one of six ethnic minority officers out of 70 in the group he works with. And in her experience, her husband's white colleagues have been so gracious and kind. She described when her husband had tore a ligament or something in his leg, he was out on medical leave, and multiple troopers called to ask if she needed anything because they considered her family. And her husband is from a suburb of Seattle. And as a teenager, experienced 
racism from cops, being accused of breaking into his own family's vehicle. People are more than just one thing. Another interview at work about the masks with our HR manager, I took her photo and she said she would email me her reason later on in the day. So later on I get back to my office and as it turns out, in the middle of all of this going on, her mom fell down and got hurt recently. And because she needed to help her mom more, she could no longer social distance with her. And so she started wearing masks. People almost never fit neatly into the boxes that we want to put them in. It feels much easier, especially when we're stressed, afraid, and grieving to categorize things quickly and move on, to get rid of our cognitive dissonance and the tension of seeing both sides. It feels easier to stay in denial. But here's the thing about denial. Brene Brown has this quote, we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive ones. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. So how? How do we begin to step through our denial and down the path of grief? This pandemic is hard. Yes, it's especially hard for those who've lost someone to COVID-19 or been sick, or to those whose jobs and businesses are on the line. But that does not mean that the rest of us are not allowed to say it's hard, too. Empathy is not a pie, and there's only so many pieces that we can hand out. We don't know a lot of things about COVID-19, and that uncertainty permeates our lives. Normal is a thing of the past. Negotiating social interactions that used to be easy now have to be defined because people have different expectations about what precautions need to be taken. Jobs, stores, and restaurants are all out of things that we need. They're complicated to navigate. We have smaller meetings, meetings online. Most restaurant seating is outside and it's hot. We are even struggling at Compass and communicating with all of you when we can't meet in person. Here we have these big decisions to make about a building, about our lease being up, and we can't all be together to even talk about it. And that's really hard. But we can disagree and still all be in it together. Still hear each other, still support each other, but as long as we refuse to acknowledge that it's hard or blame the other side, we live in denial. Denial of our own heart emotions and denial of the experiences of the people around us. When it comes to race, and I'm speaking from a white perspective because I believe that's the only one I can give personal account to, but you know, it's really easy to get defensive when it feels like we're kind of, I don't know about you, but I really don't like being lumped in a group um, where I might kill someone because of the color of their skin. That makes me feel defensive. And I get that. I felt defensive multiple, multiple times over the last few weeks. Conversations about race are loaded and uncomfortable. In fact, I felt nervous and uncomfortable even talking with you about it now. 
I felt unsure how to respond. I keep hearing it's best to listen and let people of color lead the conversation, but very quickly there is a glaring reality. We do not have very many black people in Northwest Arkansas, especially not in the Gentry Siloam, West Siloam area. And the question that rose to the surface for me is why? Maybe. It's because in Harrison, Arkansas, just 80 miles from here, I looked it up, an hour and 53 minute drive from here, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1975. The group has attempted to put a kinder, gentler face on the Klan, courting media attention and attempting to portray itself as a modern white civil rights organization, but beneath that veneer lurks the same bigoted rhetoric. Maybe it's because west of Gentry in my lifetime, there was a sign that said the N-word, don't let the sun go down on your head. And to this day, I think we have maybe six or seven black employees at McKee Foods out of 1,700. I think we would be naive to say that some of those race issues might still be lingering. As I read my Bible friends, anyone else reading my Bible friends as you were a kid? I was struck as I read it to my Native American roommates at how even the Egyptians, as they pull baby Moses out of the river, have pale, creamy, white skin. At one point a few years ago, and I, I know it's higher now, I counted and um, I'd been pulled over more than 14 times and have tickets to show for very few of them. But just a few years ago, I was pulled over like way, way, way on the far side of Springdale, like that tractor supply that's like out, out, out on the highway, and um, found out I had been driving on a suspended license for like a few years, and I didn't know. And as it turned out, the cop was from Siloam and let me off without a ticket or anything, just said, leave your car here, have someone pick you up. And I went and got my license renewed and it was fine. I realized how different that experience might have been had I been of a different race. But maybe if I can let go of my ego, if I can stop worrying so much about proving whether or not I am a racist, because I really would like to prove that, I don't know about you, but maybe I could begin to listen, to do better, to diversify my bookshelves or our children's bookshelves to have more than just white characters. To research a few things when I go to vote at local elections, or in fact, maybe I could start voting in local elections. To talk to the children in my life about race so that a generation from now, they're not even sure what we're talking about. It's part of history that they read and are aware of but maybe won't be so much a part of their felt experience. Maybe I can step away from denial and begin to do the real work that only becomes possible when I admit that there is a problem. Moving from, I'm not, oh, I'm not racist, to being anti-racist. Channing, or Austin Channing Brown, um, 
did a great interview recently, and she said, the work of anti-racism is the work of being a better human to other humans. I loved that description. I was thinking that this morning, if Jesus had disciples now, I bet even the best of us would feel so offended. He'd probably have a protester, a cop, and then he'd call a black man, a Trump supporter. Then he'd call AOC and someone from the Southern Baptist Convention. And we would be absolutely sure that this man just could not be the Christ because look at who he associates with. Look at the crazy ideas that he must have. In Luke, there's this conversation um, that Jesus had with a religious leader that comes to mind. It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I was laughing because I think Jesus gave him exactly what he wanted. It doesn't seem like this man wanted to get it right. He wanted to be right. And so Jesus kind of gives him what he wants and says, you have answered correctly. You are right. And then Jesus says, do this and you will live. But he, the man that asked, wanted to justify himself. Or another way maybe to read it is he was in denial about the reality of himself. He wanted more affirmation for his behavior. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Where at the end of the day, the other side was the neighbor that Jesus was compelling his followers to love. The other race, the other religion, the other way of doing things. Jesus interacted with people in their reality. He didn't seem to see their political affiliations, their moral compass, their race, ethnicity, or religious beliefs as a barrier to relationship. Although he didn't dismiss those things about them either. He listened to their whole story, their whole experience, their perspective. And then he did not necessarily ask them to leave all their opinions at the door and disengage with the rest of life. He simply asked them to follow him above all else. To allow his relationship with them to be the thing that influenced all the other things. And for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have come together not because they all became the same, the same opinions, traditions, skin color, or beliefs, but because they all followed the same person, Jesus Christ. And that is the thing that we have to remember, that we have to align ourselves with, that we have to put as supreme, because life is going to keep changing. We have an election coming up. It's probably going to get worse. Our lease is up on this building, and all signs point to a new building on State Line Road. And you know, when we get a new building, there's going to be a lot of thoughts and opinions about how much we should spend, and what the remodel needs to be, and what the paint colors need to be, and do we need pews, or do we need chairs, and a whole list of things that have derailed churches for generations. We don't know what COVID-19 will do. Maybe it'll die down and be gone. Maybe it won't. Our lives are filled with uncertainty. 
And our first human defense to all that grief is denial. But the invitation of Jesus calls us higher. Higher than any political platform. Than any opinion about a virus or a new building. Beyond race and ethnicity. Above my ego and yours. The invitation of Jesus is the same as it's always been. Will you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? And will you do the hard work of loving your neighbor as yourself? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We praise you that you see the past, the future, and the present all the same. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would live in our hearts, that you would guide us, that you would show us who you are, and that you would teach us to follow you above all else. Our world is a fraught and confusing place. There's so many things going on, so many groups to align with, so many opinions, and we just ask that you would tune our ears to hear your voice above all of them, that we would continually over and over follow you, that that would be the primary thing that marks us, not what group we're in, not what church we go to, not which political group we affiliate with, but you. You would define our whole lives and teach us to love how you do. In your name, amen.